Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. The leg brace was being used as a different kind of brace, right? So, and there were like waders down around ankles and that sort of thing going on. It's like getting insulted by Mr. Rogers. You know, <laughs> just because God didn't give you a brain doesn't mean you're not special and unique. I made some poor footwear choices, but you shouldn't. Bring snake boots. So you will now be able to stream those UFC fights, reruns of Dog the Bounty Hunter, and Pornhub from anywhere on the property. Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast a recent study found is best consumed while sitting in a lawn chair. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte. And, and before we get to the, the actual show, I just want to say that I, I freaking love fishing in October. Hell yeah, Rocktober. It's I call so it. good. But <laughs> unlike you, I especially love camping and fishing in October because mm. like everybody's gone it's quiet there's just like the little frost on everything in the morning the fishing is usually good but e- even if it isn't there's still enough like chill to the air that you can justify pulling out a flask because you're not day <laughs> drinking no 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 you're just staying warm <laughs> you're being responsible right and I also I also recently discovered coffee bags from Black Rifle Coffee, which I had never known about before. It's like a tea bag, except you don't have to be British or over the age of 70 to enjoy one. And they're perfect for making a hot cup of coffee, you know, when you're waiting at camp for the sunrise or the fish to bite or or you just need like a quick warm up and a recharge. They're awesome, man. I I, I had never known about them. Coffee bags. They're sweet. British or over the age of 70. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So in case you guys missed it, the Ben podcast is 100% fueled by Black Rifle Coffee. And uh, as Miles suggested, camping is not really my jam, though those will come in handy the next time I'm staying in a motel with rooms that can be rented by the hour of the week. I'll take that over a tent. So that's usually where I end up when I'm on the road. And I'd rather not I try to avoid the expired coffee packets sitting next to the tiny lime crusted coffee pot by the oh, hair dryer. Those are so bad. You know what they're I'm talking so about? Bad. 
So oh, if you, yeah, I know them well. <laughs> so, so if you like good coffee, like we do, uh, head over to blackriflecoffee.com backslash meat eater and sign up for their monthly coffee delivery service. So if you ever oversleep and rush to that next Zoom meeting, you can always just pop a bag in your mouth and brew internally. Ooh, <laughs> bitter. Uh, while you're there over at Black Rifle Coffee, enter the discount code meat eater at checkout and they will take 20% off your first order which is a, a pretty good deal. And, you know, we're on the, the subject of coffee here, Joe. I got a little fun fact for you. Shoot. Did you know that Canada drinks more coffee per capita than almost any other country in the world? Hmm. Okay. It's true. Canadians average more than 152 liters per person per year, which uh, the internet told me works out to about 40 gallons, which, you know, seems like a lot. And that puts them third in the world behind the Netherlands and Finland, for all the, the big coffee chains and ubiquitous hipster cafes that feed our addictions to legal uppers and free Wi-Fi, we Americans barely crack the top 10. We only come in at number nine. Well, Canadians I, got us beat. Uh, I, this doesn't surprise me at all, because there's a Tim Hortons every 35 meters in Canada. <laughs> this is not shocking. And guess what, Canada? Tim Hortons is overrated. You ever, you yeah. ever been to a Tim Hortons? I have. I okay. have. They, I was a little disappointed. They think because you get your Canadian bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich on a real ceramic dish, it's like classier than Dunkin' Donuts, and it's not. Mm. I prefer <laughs> my I, I prefer it's my saucer sandwich served without a smile, and more importantly, I like to drink my coffee when it's handed to me because Tim Hortons holding temperature. I swear to God, man, it's like four thousand degrees Celsius. So if I'm in Canada, I get one in the morning and hope I'm ready for a pick me up at lunch because that's when it's drinkable, you know. But <laughs> they're not going to get sued over the hot coffee thing like they want over they, here. Yeah, that's yeah they yeah they they're not so sue happy. That is a plus. Uh, but look, we like to josh around and have a little fun with our neighbors to the north. But you you know you have to admit, uh, in all seriousness, all of our guide friends and and lodge owner buddies up there. They're having a really rough go of it this year, yep. you know, and and may yep. well continue to have a rough go as as ice fishing season approaches because, uh, as we all know, the the border between the U.S. and Canada is still closed due to the COVIDs, so we can't visit, which is a bummer because I love fishing in Canada, and this also means, uh, you know, these guys are experiencing some financial hardship. You know, because we can't go. So for this week's regional fishing report, we thought we'd, you know, check in with our buddy and lodge owner, Mitch McFly, all the way out on Spooner's Lake in Alberta, just to sort of see, you know, how he's been holding up through this whole thing. Hi there, folks. Mitch McFly here with your weekly fishing report from Pickerel Point Lodge on Alberta's pristine Spooner's Lake. Before I get into the fishing, though, we sure do hope you and your family are staying healthy and happy in these hectic times, particularly our valued guests from the States. We've missed your uh, friendly faces this season. It just hasn't been the same around here without seeing 15 dirty and mostly broken down coolers stacked outside the doors of our quaint cottages, or getting those morning calls in the office asking for someone to please bring over a plunger. Anyways, quick bit of housekeeping. Some of our repeat guests may remember old Gus, our longtime boat mechanic, We've unfortunately had to lay old Gus off for the season because, wouldn't you know it, we didn't have a single lodge boat blow right past the shallow water marker boys and run up on the rocks at Thompson's Cove. 
Without the constant inflow of props to refurbish and lower units to restore, we just couldn't keep Gus busy, so we sent him home. He was a good sport about it, though, and happy to spend a little bit more time on his true passion, carving small wooden bears and moose. Hope to have a pile of them for sale in the gift shop next season. Okay then, I am happy to announce that the walleye bite has been better than I have seen it in, oh, probably 20 years. Some folks around here say it's due to the lack of fishing pressure, but I think it's because the local anglers go a little slower. We tend to favor a more methodical approach instead of that fast, erratic, circular trolling pattern I know most of you boys from the States rely on. It's like I always tell you fellows, the hours of 11 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. are not exactly what I'd call prime time, but you can still find at least a few polite fish to bite in the middle of the day. You know, they are Canadian, eh? Surprisingly, I've caught quite a few 40-inch pike right off the docks this year. I've had a little more time to do some fishing in the evenings because there aren't the 30 to 40 crushed Bud Light cans strewn about the property that need rounding up for proper disposal in one of the many, many conveniently placed recycling bins we have on site. A five of diamond spoon has been producing really well for me, and I found it quite relaxing and therapeutic to just cast and reel while I listen to the call of the loons, which aren't completely drowned out by Kid Rock and that chicken fried song blasting from the picnic tables over at the boathouse. I'd also like to mention that, on the bright side, we've been able to spend time improving our operation and beautiful facilities. Based on your feedback, we've loaded up on Mrs. Butterworth and will only serve what you folks refer to as that maple sap shit upon request. All of our bag lunches will now include three packets of mayonnaise instead of the usual one, and most importantly, we've upgraded our Wi-Fi, so you will now be able to stream those UFC fights, reruns of Dog the Bounty Hunter, and Pornhub, from anywhere on the property. Anything we can do to make your stay here more comfortable, we just uh, can't wait to have you folks back. We pray that uh, you can return to the serene beauty of Alberta by mm, 2023 or 2024 at the very latest. Thanks and God bless. Canadians are so good <laughs> at polite <laughs> insults. It's like an art form up there, man. You know, the, the Japanese have kabuki. The French have impressionistic <laughs> painting. Americans have monster truck rallies. And the Canadians can tell you you're an a-hole without you even knowing. No, you're right. You're right, man. It's like getting insulted by Mr. Rogers. You know? <laughs> Just because God didn't give you a brain doesn't mean you're not special and unique. Yeah. <laughs> and look, though I, I cannot tell the story on this show. Remind me to tell you later about an epic anti-Canadian rant I heard delivered on a boat by a Floridian, of course, of course, who didn't course. know the guy he was ranting to was from Canada, right? And dude, <laughs> it was nasty. Oh. And and the poor guy's follow up in 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 polite Canadian fashion was simply, I'm actually Canadian, and he just left it at that. <laughs> And both dudes walked away stunned, and the, and the rest of the lake trout fishing was really friggin' awkward. Um, anyway, I, the, I mean, dude, you know where I'm from. We come out of the yeah. womb insulting the doctor out here. <laughs> yeah, and which is, it's interesting. Like, I, when I was, the, the time that I've spent out east, I've always amazed at how much the insults can jack up and jack up and jack up, and, like, nothing comes of it. Because where I grew up in Hawaii... Like we we rarely get to the insult stage before people are already getting punched in the face. Oh yeah, we're like, all hot air just, here. We're all hot that's air. That's just dude. like like Hawaii. It's like oh hey, what's up? What's up? And you're already getting punched. Like it's just <laughs> over. Uh, I I I I gotta say I think I think Canadians have the right idea, and that we could we all learn a little something from them. But uh, 
you know, since we're on the subject of insults and insulting people, I feel like it's time for, for us to switch over to this week's Smooth Moves. Indeed it is. And this is a special one for me personally. I actually recorded this a couple months back when I was on my annual Upper Delaware River mousing trip uh, with some of my favorite fishing buds up there. And I've, I've been going up there every year just to fish at night for about six years now. And when I'm there, I always meet up with my good friend and the owner of Whitetail Country Fly Shop, Joe D. Mulderis. And Joe has a hot, sticky, steamy story for us this week. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. This week on Smooth Moves, I'm very happy to be sitting here with my, my, my old friend, my dear friend, Joe D. Mulderis, who I would consider the grand poobah of the Upper Delaware. Would you agree with that? Uh, No. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm saying you're the godfather of this turf. We're actually sitting in Joe's guide shack uh, up here on the river, so it's nice to do an on-location with you. This is one of my favorite places. Um, and remind us all how many years guiding you have, Joe? Uh, it's like three decades. Three decades. And yeah. now you told me before we started this that you've actually blocked out a lot of things that would have probably made good smooth moves. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's there's a slew of them. I can go on for hours if I start really like letting them come back to my brain. But um, you know, some of the things you just never want to like make sure you don't remember them. Okay, but you do have one uh, on the tip of the brain for for today. Yes. Well, I'll give you the yeah. I'll give you the like the b- most bizarre one. How's okay. That? Okay. Okay. So. Um, it's end of night, it's pitch black coming out at this like kind of remote-ish makeshift boat launch. Um, we got to kind of walk a few hundred yards to go get your vehicle. So, you know, let the anchor out. Got a, a newlywed couple, kind of not, kind of like a senior citizen newlywed couple. <laughs> you know, they weren't like young kids. They were like 60. She was like maybe 40, but he, okay. was, he was in his 60s, retired guy. And um, he was in the back. She's in the front. Get to a spot and going to pull out put the anchor down. I said, just hang tight. I'm going to be a little while. I'm going to walk up, come back and just don't get out of the boat. Cause just stay there. Right. So, um, I go get my truck. I come driving back down through the woods and my boat's gone. And I left the light for him too. Cause it's really dark. And I had a little like dinky, like, yeah, I've, this is a long I've time been ago. to this takeout with you. And yeah, like, right. You know exactly yeah, where it is. No light, and it's a good hike up to get where yeah. your truck is. So yeah. come back with my truck. It's like no boat. And I look down river, and just on the last bend, as far down as I could see, the little light's starting to vanish going down the river. I'm like, oh, crap. So, and this was a long time ago. So I run down the bank. I grab a flashlight ahead of my truck. I run down the bank, got this light going, and I catch up to the boat they're totally oblivious. I'm yelling. They don't even hear me, right? And they're totally oblivious because he had gotten out of the back of the boat, went up to the bow. Oh, so it shifted the weight and lifted right, the anchor. shifted the weight and lifted the anchor. I didn't have like a lot of scope out because, I mean, that wasn't supposed to happen, right? Like stay in the boat. <laughs> and if it starts floating away, you think you'd notice. But there was a big preoccupation that was happening that they didn't notice they were floating away the whole time. And- that's because it's like the leg brace was being used as a different kind of brace, right? So, and there were like waders down around ankles and that sort of thing going on. And they were totally oblivious. She was absolutely mortified. He, he actually didn't even like think it was a big deal, right? So, okay, wait. All right. 
So they're banging. I'll just say. Yeah, that's what they're doing. <laughs> exactly what they're doing. How far out in the, like, were they still close to the bank or did they like drift oh, they way like, out in the middle? Well, it's not like really, well, the river's wide, but it's not really deep. Yeah. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe 50 yards out, 40 yards out. Okay. You know? And so I go sloshing out. Now, this happened. Like, I was in probably my late 30s, early 40s when this happened. I mean, today, I would have just said, well, there goes the boat. I'll just go get my truck and meet him at the next takeout. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, you know, so I grab the boat and I drag it all the way back up river. You know, the the guy's like, well, I'll get out and help you. I'm like, no, just stay there. Don't move. So, but when you waded out and walked up on the boat, were they still like, like mid, mid coitus? No, because then I hit him with this big like flashlight I had in a truck, right? <laughs> and that got that got her attention, right? And she was like, "E," you know, and like c- kind of cut everything off. So, um, did you guys talk about it? Uh, kind of, sort of, not really. I don't remember, to tell you the truth, because now I had to hump the boat back up, current pulling it. You know, it was like, "Oh, this really stinks." Um, and and I really kind of felt sorry for her. She was mortified. She really was really, really embarrassed. And he wasn't, you know, which was kind of like really odd. So I, I could tell she, that was making her more embarrassed, you know, and I kind of felt bad for her. But um, yeah, it was kind of kind of odd. And uh, I never did see them again. So I don't know if they, they stayed married or not or whatever. I don't really worry about it. Well, God bless him. <laughs> what a story for later, though. That dude's still telling that story. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Probably. I think I told my wife the story, too, and tried to get her up in the front of the boat one night. She wasn't that interested. <laughs> well, that's a new one on me, man. Like, uh, I've, I've heard of clients sneaking off for a little alone time. Yeah. I've, 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 I've had that. And I've, I've heard of anchors slipping and guides losing their boats. I've seen that. But I have never heard of clients uh, copulating so hard that they actually pull the anchor. <laughs> Dude, that, you're in the, that's a new one for me. When you're in the mood, you're in the mood. I momos. Guess. Momos. That's a word we like to use around here for people that execute those kinds of screw-ups. Momos. Yeah, we don't we don't use that one out here. I know we have learned that all of you out there listening to this podcast, or at least a lot of you, are big fans of, uh, shall we call them derogatory words for you guys, outsiders. You guys, you guys love insults, and that's <laughs> why we love you, because you're all just about... <laughs> insulting people it's great so we're, we're bringing it up we're bringing up that that theme back at least for one more week uh and here in the mountain west we have our own derogatory word for uh people from elsewhere and i'm going to define that for you in this week's weekly word webster's dictionary defines fish as this week's word is gaper a while back joe gave you the definition from mup here which is what people in Northwest Pennsylvania call city folk from Philly who come up here for the weekend to fish. Well, the East doesn't have a lock on derogatory terms for tourists. One Mountain West slur for Flintlanders is gaper, as in someone so dumbstruck by the scale of topography and beauty they're seeing, they just stand there with their mouth agape, usually stopping traffic, holding up a lift line, or blocking a boat ramp. This term comes from ski culture, but has been thoroughly adopted into the fishing scene. When I first moved out to Montana, nearly 20 years ago now, I was a complete gaper. I was so constantly in awe of everything around me that I spent a good mm, 30% of my time in a mouth-breathing trance. I was such a gaper that I had no idea what that word meant, so when people called me a gaper, I didn't know enough to realize they were making fun of me. He's so holly, he doesn't even know he's holly. 
I was officially christened with the nickname Gaper on a backcountry fishing trip with my good friend Matt Daly. We had spent most of the day hiking deep into a box canyon, and when we finally got to our riverside campsite, the pool in front of us was boiling with rising trout, some of the biggest I had ever seen at that point in my life. While Daly set about doing what a seasoned fisherman would do, you know, calmly assembling his rod, building his leader, and tying on the appropriate fly, I just stood there, dumbfounded, staring at this horde of trout sipping mayflies off the surface. Once Daly had finished rigging, slipped into his waders, and laced up his boots, he passed behind me and half yelled, Gape, 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 on his way to the pool. That broke my reverie, and uh, when he immediately hooked a fish, I started scrambling to put together my own gear. To solidify my status as a gaper, I hurried through the rigging and tied a few, let's call them questionable knots. When I finally did start fishing, I somehow hooked the biggest fish in the pool, which broke me off on the first run when my blood knot failed. The nickname followed me, even after I stopped gaping my way through every Montana season, and I eventually just had to embrace it. To this day, every once in a while when I'm floating a local river or riding on a local ski hill, I'll hear someone yell out, Gaper! I'll stop and look around trying to figure out if an acquaintance from the distant past has just recognized me, or there's some random kook in the near vicinity eliciting wrath from a local. So, we don't have those kinds of gapers out here in the Northeast, though, uh, on the radio, like FM, old school, during traffic (laughs) reports, if there's an accident on the highway, sometimes they will note that there's a gaper delay. They that's actually a, call a, it that? They, it's called a gaper delay. Ah, gaper delay on 95 <laughs> South at Academy Road. So we it's don't, not rubbernecking, we, it's gaping. Yeah. So we just gape at other people's misery and bloodshed <laughs> because there are, just, there are no mountains. You know? But regardless, you realize that the tens of people listening to this podcast are now going to resurrect that nickname for you, right? You oh, yeah. officially yeah. sealed your fate to forever be known as gaper. That's all right. That's all right. Gaper I can handle. It's better than being a loser which is what one of us is going to be at the end of this next segment. It's time for Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. Before we get into the meat of Fish News, I want to let you guys know about uh, the fishing community actually doing some good in the world for once. My buddy Josh Mills harnesses the evil of Instagram and leverages it away from the dark side. Josh is running an online auction to help out communities that have been devastated by all the big fires out west called Flies for Fire Relief. It's a, it's a really unique fundraiser. It's completely social media based. All the money goes to GoFundMe pages set up to help individuals and communities who've been hammered by the fires. And I can personally vouch for this as legit. This isn't one of those IRS voicemail scams that I keep getting threatening me with jail time if I don't call them back and give them my social security number. Yeah, what a great concept to use social media for something that's actually useful. But uh, they're auctioning off rods, reels, waders, boots, guided fishing trips. There's even a first light camo pattern lamps and fly reel up for auction. And I mean, I work at Meat Eater and I don't even have one of those. So, you know. Me neither. <laughs> nope. And I'm actually going to be throwing down a dozen custom Master Splinter mouse flies that I'll be whipping up on the vice. So follow at Mills Fly or follow the hashtag Flies for Fire Relief so you don't miss it 
when my mouses pop up for grabs. And so far, the campaign has already raised more than $40,000, and they are still going, which is amazing. Uh, anyway, now on to the real fish news, which you all remember is a competition where Miles and I scour the deepest, darkest crevices of the internet looking for the most interesting nuggets of fish or fishing-related news. Um, neither of us has any idea what the other is about to say. And at the end of it all, uh, if you guys have been following along, our esteemed audio engineer, Phil, decides who wins and uh, who hangs his head in shame. Lately, that's been me. Miles has been mm-hmm. on a hot streak. So I'm, I'm, I'm nervous and, and my confidence is shaken, especially because uh, you get to lead off this week. So You should be nervous, Joe. Mm. <laughs> you should. Because I'm starting out this week right about where I left off last week, which worked out well for me. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit... The invasive carp files. Man, right, so you, last you, just, week, you just love a carp, man. You just. Dude, I do. I, I actually do. I love and hate them. And that's all wrapped up into, into this package here. <laughs> okay. Last week, I schooled everyone about the dangers of feral goldfish. Goldfish are carp, and carp in their various forms are arguably the most destructive aquatic invasive species in North America. Well, this week, the state of Wisconsin issued its first arrest for the illegal sale of Asian carp. But before mm. I get into the details of all that, uh, I, I feel like I got to provide a little bit of context. Some of you will know this, some of you won't, but it, it's important. Asian carp is a catch-all term that refers to several different carp species, including bighead, silver, and grass carp. These fish were brought here from China in the 60s and 70s for a whole bunch of different reasons, but as so often happens in these situations, they escaped. And they invaded local waters, and they've been spreading ever since. They're now in 28 states and, and still going. Yeah, You've probably seen footage of, of the thousands of silver carp flying out of the water when boats pass by and people like hitting them with clubs and arrows and all that. that that's been pretty well, pretty well covered. Uh, and most of that comes from places like the Illinois River that have been just totally overrun by these fish. And just so you guys understand what we're talking about, these fish can consume 40% of their body weight per day in aquatic nutrients. And in some waterways, Asian carp now make up more than 90% of the total biomass. Yeah, and they just push Think everything else out. Yeah, I mean, it's insane, the amount of... Like, <laughs> 90% of the bio... Not 90% of the fish, 90% of all the biomass, everything that lives in a waterway are now Asian carp. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just throw in there, like, you used to see a lot of those videos, the jumping carp and the bow fishermen and stuff, and just yeah. because you don't see that many anymore, it's not because they've gone away. Like, like no. you say, they are just pushing further and further, you know, up into it's the just great growing. It's, it's It's crazy. Yeah. So all this is just to say that these fish are a huge problem. And like you were saying, Joe, fisheries managers and other people have been fighting their asses off to keep these fish from reaching the Great Lakes because everyone feels like that's that's the major tipping point. If they get there, the Great Lakes are just going to crash, and, yep. and that's what we're all trying to stop. So for that reason, it is illegal to transport any Asian carp in Wisconsin unless they have been gutted or had their gill plates severed. Those stipulations were enacted because these fish can live for like a surprisingly long amount of time out of the water. I've, I read some, I read different numbers, but but over a day seems to be the consensus. Yeah, there's 
Crazy. There's very similar rules out here for snakeheads. Same thing. You can transport them if it's like got its head cut off because they right. can breathe air and it, yeah, same kind of deal. Yeah. And I mean, what that, what that means is like a fish might appear dead and it's been riding in a truck for hours, but theoretically it might still be capable of, of surviving if it were to somehow get out and escape into a waterway. All right. So back to this arrest. Ping Lee is a wholesale fish dealer from Plattsville, Wisconsin, who now faces four misdemeanor counts of possessing illegal fish. Apparently, Mr. Lee has been transporting Asian carp from central Illinois to fish markets in Chicago and Madison, sometimes as much as 2,500 pounds at a time, for at least the past three years. Wisconsin DNR has been working on a sting to catch this guy since 2018 using undercover agents covert surveillance and gps trackers suffice hmm. to say wisconsin is not messing around with the asian carp thing and and I, I applaud those efforts but i have to say i'm honestly conflicted about this story uh, i know i know I, where I, you're going and i feel the same yeah. way yep because because like all right one of the tools for dealing with the asian carp infestation is through commercial harvest gill netters are now making a pretty good living in many places like Illinois and Tennessee, catching and selling tons and tons and tons of these invasive carp. Ryan Callahan did a great little segment about this on, on the Meat Eater YouTube channel that you should definitely check out. And Cal actually brought some of the fillets from that episode over to my house one night for dinner. And Joe, you were there. I was there. I ate it. I thought it was delicious. Yeah. I was shocked we, by how was. good it was. Yeah. Like it was, it was truly delicious. It was not just tolerable. It's like really, really good eating fish. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of fish that you could feed to people who say they don't really like fish. And then you could watch them after they take that first bite and they go, oh, that's actually good. Well, yeah. And isn't that because a lot of these fish, they filter feed versus common carp that grub the bottom. So people think right. carp have that mud taste, but that's not the way that these fish feed. It was a super no. mild. It, super mild. It wasn't like, oh my God, the flavor of this fish is phenomenal, but it's just a very sort of baseline good white meat fish. Exactly. Totally palatable. And, and so my point in all this is that large-scale harvest is one of the very few viable tools we have for trying to control these invasive fish. So that's something that I think we want to encourage, not discourage. And harvest only works if it's connected to an effective distribution network. And so that's why this Wisconsin arrest gives me some pause. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, like Mr. Lee was clearly in violation of the law. I'm, I'm not arguing that. His fish had their viscera and gill plates intact, but he wasn't transporting live fish. It's not like he was smuggling carp into Wisconsin to start a fish farm. He was selling thousands and thousands of pounds of Asian carp for meat. That's just it. If, he's, if he has that much demand, he's selling that much fish, then good. Then get out there and kill more to keep up with that demand. I mean, I, yeah. I, the law is the law. You know, I, I, I feel like... The sting operation, like, couldn't we have gone to him and said, like, we love what you're doing here. Can you just make sure that you remove all the gill plates and like, just do it the right way? Yeah. I, and, I, and there, there may be some things that I don't know about this story, but that's exactly how I feel. And it, it really seems from everything I could read. And I read a bunch of news stories on this. It seems like Wisconsin DNR is trying to throw the book at this guy. And I think that might be a mistake. Like, man. I, I. I, yeah. I think if we're going to curb the populations of these fish through commercial gill netting, we need fish sellers 
that are willing to transport them. And, and I'm, I'm worried that this case might make people think twice about getting into the carp selling business. And then you can harvest all you want, but if you don't have a market, they don't go anywhere. I agree completely. And it, it kind of harkens back to some stories from, I forget if it was the 90s, but there was a similar problem uh, out here on the East Coast with the salmon fisheries. Guys would go over snag their limit, catch their limit, fill these trucks and run them to sell them in New York City. And the way they stung them was they put uh, blacklight dye in the salmon eggs and then went down to New York huh. City and blacklit in the sushi restaurants. And that's how they figured it out. But that's a that's a a recreational fishery that's bringing a lot of money to town. I understand the sting and the undercover on that. Yeah, but absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more, man. Like if, if you have people that are making a living killing thousands of pounds of these fish, just I, I kind of disagree with the level of book throwing here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So that was I'm I'm torn on I, like like I said, I the the guys clearly clearly he broke the law. I'm not arguing that, but I, I feel like these are the kind of actions we, we kind of want to support, not dissuade, and and arresting him seems to have the opposite impact. If he's selling that many, putting him out of business for this, like ruining to the point where he can't operate, that alone leaves how many more Asian carp in the system, potentially, yeah. just for, for potentially. His, his suppliers. So, well, hey, by all means, write in, let us know what you think, because we're torn yeah. on that one, and we'd love to yep. hear from you guys. Uh, this is this is perfect for me because you know, Asian carp. It's like all Asian carp. Uh, you know, a, a good Asian carp is a dead carp over here, and we look at carp very differently in the U.S. than they do uh, across the pond in the U.K. So uh, I don't know if this is going to hurt my win this week, but um, I, I do have a bit of an obituary here, uh, sadly, and this comes to us from the U.K.'s Sun, and I was stunned and wept when I read this headline. It says, not carping on, angling world in mourning as Britain's biggest common carp dies age 25. And I said to myself, God, please tell me they're not talking about Tarka, because I've been following Tarka the carp since his MySpace days, tell you the truth. Uh, But alas, my worst fears were realized from the story. The angling world is mourning the death of Britain's biggest known common carp, the Whopper, known as Tarka was aged about 25 and weighed 65 pounds, two ounces at its heaviest. Um, He died from natural causes in his lake at the Avenue Fishery in Shropshire. And anglers traveled from far and wide for the chance to catch Tarka. And Tarka's owner, Rob Hales, said, There were numerous lucky enough anglers to catch him in the past, and it has been amazing to follow the magnificent journey of his growth. Tarka was introduced to the fishery in 2008 when he weighed more than 20 pounds, uh, and he was named Tarka after part of his tail was bitten off by an otter. And um, I don't know I don't know why. Maybe Tarka is an old British word for bitten by otter. Uh, anyway, heart, heartbroken anglers took to social media to pay tribute. Gary Roberts posted, so sad, RIP Tarka. What an incredible carp, a legend. Luke Edwards, who caught Tarka when he weighed just under 53 pounds, said, made me a very, very happy angler and many more. R.I.P. Tarka. Eric Cranston said, this is so sad. Unbelievable, stunning fish. To lose any fish is upsetting, but the jewel in the crown must hit everyone who's caught it and admired it. Um, And I actually have a a good friend, Nigel Pulsford, over in the U.K., uh, the guy's utterly devoted to Pay Lake carp fishing, and I gave him a call just to see how he was feeling about this tragic news, and here's what he said. No, let me stop you. Let, let, let me stop you. This is driving me f-ing mental. Will you f-ing stop f-ing me? 
<laughs> so clearly he was just too distraught to talk about it. Um, I, I hope he rallies. I think you caught him on a bad day. <laughs> Look, you, I'll I say thought this. you said you were friends. I don't know if, I don't think that's true. He's really upset right now. I should have given it a few days. Look, man, I'll say this. No disrespect to British carpers, okay? Because carping is serious business over there, right? It generates big dollars. And I love carp too. I think you do too. I've spent a lot of time carping, particularly on the fly. And I admire the passion of these guys that camp out all weekend under a tarp, like waiting for a named fish to eat a boilie and make that bite a large screen. Bivy. Yeah, it's a bivy. Um, but I, I just have to say, and like, pardon me, I'm happy. Like, that's not my best or only option for freshwater fishing. You know what I'm saying? It, it makes me like want to say, don't ever take for granted your land access, public lands, ability to hike miles of stream and hop guardrails. You know, drop your boat in hundreds of lakes. Yes. Uh, you know. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I'm guilty of going on tangents about how there are like too many people out here now ruining spots, but it could be worse. You know, you can feel that same frustration at a lake. You're paying harder and money to fish, trying to catch a carp so fat it can barely swim. So it's like, you know, that's what you got. I think it's, anyway, I think it's, it's very difficult to judge European carp fishing by American standards. And I, and we run the risk of being those obnoxious American assholes who are looking down our nose at them being like, Oh, those stupid Brits and their course fishing. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to be that guy. I, no. I, I don't, but I, I, I'm fascinated by the carp fishing scene, kind of the same way that I'm fascinated by the, the tournament bass angling scene here. It's not something I want to do, but again, sociologically, God, it's interesting to me. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and again, I'm, we're only having some fun here. I've actually done the Euro carp thing. I had a buddy really? who was got, yeah, he got very into it here in the States. And he had all the stuff, all the, but no, no bivy. We had no tents, but <laughs> all the bite alarms, you know, he would show up and bait the swim and all that stuff and uh, caught some, some giant carp doing that. But I almost, you know, I almost feel bad because these guys are so into it on these lakes where these fish are just pounded and pounded and pounded. And I've I've heard European guys say that usually they don't fight very well, right? Because they, they've been caught a bunch of times. They played that game, yeah. You're right. And then you come to the States and they catch a wild river carp or something here. And it's like, holy shit. You know, they fight. These wild fish here fight so much more. So, you know, it's almost surprising that we're not like destiny, like travel destination number one for this, because you can go wherever the hell you want. There's carp everywhere. They're probably a lot dumber than the carp over there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, it, it just it just also is emblematic of the different attitudes there and here about carp, right? Here. People go out with bows and, and whack as many carp as you possibly can and kill them, and they're, they're seen as a nuisance. We hate them. Over there, one carp dies, and it makes national news, right? That they're so revered. And I think that's I think that's a pretty good way of, of kind of framing how our different culture, fishing cultures <laughs> look at carp right there. Well, what the story said, and I, I didn't jot this down, so I hope I'm not wrong, but I believe that it said that as big as Tarka was, it couldn't become a record fish because common carp are not native there either. They only count the mirror carp. In record standing, huh? Well, no carp are native there. I don't want. We're going to get into a yeah. rabbit hole there. Let's yeah. not. Let's not go too far down that hole. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. But I mean, you you did sort of tee me up there for my next story, Joe, because we're not on the happiest of news today and and I'm not, I'm going to kind of stick with not the happiest of news. Uh I'm also going to stick at least from my angle here the with the angle of commercial fishing. I'm on the commercial fishing theme this week. Okay. And honestly man, I'm trying to find a sliver of hope in all the news we read about crashing marine stocks. Mhm. And so one of the not great, but <laughs> one of the many issues that marine fisheries face is illegal unregulated catch. International mm-hmm. harvest regulations are like super, super complicated and contentious. And I am not going to dive into all that here because we don't have time. But just to quickly and vastly oversimplify, a UN treaty does exist between 66 countries and the European Union regulating marine harvest at theoretically sustainable levels. Unfortunately, lots of fleets continue to operate illegally. Policing those fleets across global oceans, just it's it's not feasible. There's there's too much water out there. Like we can't police all the oceans. Sure. So one of the other ideas for curbing this destruction is to find ways of preventing the illegal fish from getting to the markets. Right? If the illicit fishermen can't sell their catch, they won't keep fishing illegally. 
Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Right? But monitoring all the boats coming into international ports is also like a Herculean task. So the folks at Pew Charitable Trusts just developed a new interactive tool to help port authorities and seafood buyers determine where illegal seafood is most likely to enter the markets. The tool uses data from automatic information systems, which are those electronic things that are on all boats now. Mm-hmm. And it focuses on the top 99 global ports that receive the highest level of traffic from foreign vessels. But the thing is, like, there's my, my good news thing, but the thing is, this is just a tool that ports and seafood buyers can use if they choose to. The existence not, of this tool alone. To, no, there's no obligation. It, it is just came out, yeah. right? Just having this tool doesn't do anything to curb or dissuade illegal seafood trade, which currently brings in over $23 billion a year. Like you're fighting a, a lot of money there. I believe it. Yeah. And in order for this to actually have any impact, the ports and the fish wholesalers need to, to use this information. They got to actually turn away illegal vessels or refuse to buy their catch. And whether or not that happens, you know, it remains to be seen. My take is that this is a step in the right direction. It's, it's not a solution, but I appreciate that this tool exists. And I hope people will, will start to implement some policies around it. But for my part, I just try to know as much about the origins of the fish I eat as possible. Preferably I or somebody I know catches it. Any fish I buy at a store is probably contributing to the problem. Even if the packaging says wild caught, but that said still better than farm fish. So, you know, it's about all I can do. And I, I mean, dude, we could books have been written on it. We could, we could, you can get so lost in this debate and all the different different angles and it is a great tool and it is a step in the right direction but if you if you step back and look at commercial fishing as a whole it just it it, it just reeks of like a, a like a mafia operation to me it always has and that's what's so hard to penetrate like if you're not getting your fish for your restaurants from a reputable source but the price is right it's like getting that many people to do the right thing it's really hard feels to do. feels impossible feels yeah. like almost impossible um I'm I'm not willing to go impossible, but I will say it's it's hard and I like to when when I can think better of people, maybe having access to this tool, some some of the bigger seafood buyers and wholesalers and some of the bigger ports will will use it. We'll see. I want to be I want to be positive today, Joe. That's where I want to yeah, go. Yeah. Well, I mean, the technology has to exist for anybody to use it at all. So so we will see. And I think you know, I think there are a lot of operations out there that really do care about sustainable and care about wild caught, but um you know, I guess it all depends on the volume and, and, and what you need. It just seems like such a, a, a tangled web, you know. And yep. then, then if you start looking how this parlays into recreational fishing, it's a whole other rabbit hole. You know, I've heard organizations uh, talk about recreational fluke limits as an example, but then uh, they'll say, well, we don't have a good way to monitor the guys dragging for them. So it seems to me like until you have a good way to monitor that and know what they're doing with those fish – it's much harder to come down on the recreational guys. Like it's just the the whole commercial scene, man. It's just so it's so twisted. Yep, it's and it's it's a hard one to balance out. And this is we're I mean this is one tiny little story in, in a much bigger thing. Like you said, books have been written about it. But I'm hoping I'm hoping we get something potentially positive out of this tool anyway. Well, let's we're gonna we're gonna keep moving on in a positive direction, even though. I think this is, here's another story with a dead fish. I mean, that just seems like we're just all. <laughs> we're all about dead fish we're, today. We're all about fish death uh, in this in this news segment. Uh, but it, it's a feel-good story, even though there is death. And um, 
I, we actually first got tipped off to this one by listener Taylor Riggin. And uh, there's a bunch of sources out there. The one I'm pulling from here is from Inforum.com. And the headline is, Iowa man catches near-record Minnesota muskie in unexpected place. So it goes a little something like this. It starts out, the fish was so big, Brandon Graddock claims to have lost control of his bodily functions the first time he saw it. And here's a quote. It jumped one time. When he jumped, I saw him, comma, I, in parentheses, defecated. So we're going to assume he said shit to the journalist. So when I saw him, I shit. I literally did, he says. I, I really hope that's one of the misuses <laughs> of literal, like the, when people say literally but mean figuratively. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you. So uh, the Iowa City, Iowa truck driver might have been exaggerating about his reaction to seeing his fish of a lifetime, but there is no need to exaggerate about the fish itself. Graddock landed a 52-pound, 57-inch muskalung, and this was at the end of August, from Straight Lake in Becker County near Osage, Minnesota. And he was there on vacation, and this beast had a 25-inch girth. Wow. So that's, that's, a, that's a massive muskie, right? big muskie. But, but there's there's a lot of interesting things going on with this story. Um, so he did keep the whopper, which died while in possession. Uh, it appears to be the Minnesota record for a non-release muskie, and its measurements were within fractions of the state's catch and release mark. Uh, but here's here's where it starts to get interesting, right? Um, there have never been any muskies stocked in Straight Lake, nor, according to Minnesota DNR, have they ever gotten any in net studies in Straight Lake. And huh. uh, what they say is that um, they believe that it jumped from a rearing pond located across the highway, across 34, from the lake. <laughs> uh, it jumped across... Anyway, I'm going to leave that one. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't think they're necessarily saying it jumped, but that's where they figure at some point it came from. So some other fun facts, right? Uh, the fish hit a two-and-a-half-inch-long booyah crankbait that Graddock said he, quote, grabbed out of the bargain bin at Walmart. Yes. Because that, kids, yes. is how you catch a big muskie. And I'm not kidding. I feel like a, I feel like a broken record. You want to catch a muskie? <laughs> Target bass and, and, and crappies like this dude. Uh, on a oh, the bargain <laughs> bin. That's so good. Don't, don't buy the $40 musky lure, buy the $2 bargain bin lure. Bargain Heck bin yeah. all day. Uh, but on a down note, however, because uh, Graddock was using super light line and a lighter outfit, uh, the fight lasted 30 minutes and it kind of whooped the fish, which, yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, he also didn't have a big enough net. So landing must have been something. He apparently squoze it into like a little trout size net. I would love to see that. Me too. Though obviously he did land it because then the yeah. story says Graddock wanted to show his family the massive catch. So he called and told them to wait on the dock at the resort about a 15 minute boat ride away. The nearly five foot long fish didn't come close to fitting in his live well either. So Graddock just put the muskie's head in the water and zipped back to the dock. Put that whole dog and pony show together, and you've got a dead muskie. And while good on you for an amazing catch, as you can imagine, he's been catching some flack over that, though he says, don't worry, I plan to skin mount it. So there you go. Now, as crazy as this whole thing is, this is the piece that, that really sticks with me. Um, I can't speak for everywhere, but particularly out here, like in Pennsylvania where I live, there are so many creeks and, and warm water rivers and stuff that, you know, everybody thinks has just rock bass and smallmouth and pickerel and stuff. 
But at certain times a year, because of other tribs that come in, it's like if you know where you're going, like there's some big ass brown trout in this one in December that aren't actually supposed to be there. Like there's all sorts of little secret things like that out here. I don't know if it's the same in Montana, but that's what I think is so cool, you know, because it makes me wonder, did somebody else know there's some muskies in Straight Lake, you know, and for years have been like, no, there's not. Don't fish here. No, there's not. You know what I mean? I think yeah. that's neat. I, I do too. I do too. And, uh, you know, it, it's one of those ones, like I get why people are upset. That's poor fish handling and the musky community in particular gets way, way serious about that stuff. So I'm, sure. I'm not going to, I'm not going to weigh on that, but if you're talking about a place, it's not like we're talking about Mille Lacs or Lake St. Clair or Green Bay or one of those fisheries where musky hunters go to target their fish and yeah. those, they want to have them there. It wasn't even supposed to be there. So I think that that has to be part of the conversation when you're weighing all this, you know, it's not, a, it's not an optimal example of how you should handle the fish, but that happens sometimes it's fishing. You know, and it's it's know, it's a little hard to blame the dude, right? Because the Minnesota record has stood since 1957 from yeah. Lake Winnebagosh. So if that ends up taking it, man, how ironic is it in the land of 10,000 lakes, it comes from the one that's not supposed to have them. <laughs> that's you know great. what I mean? That's great. Like the, the irony in that is terrific. So uh, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll have some follow-up on this one, you know, see, see if he gets qualified. But uh, yeah, he ain't going to forget that one. So. Nope. All right, Phil, you got a, you got a tough one this week, man. Do you want to go with the lighthearted, fun fish catching stories and fish dying stories? <laughs> or are you going to go with like the serious fisheries ecological level stories? What are you What are you going to pick, buddy? We're all waiting with bated breath to find out. Did Miles Nolte bring in the most pressing fish stories this week? Yes, but did he bring in the most interesting fish stories this week? Also, yes. Despite that, however. In memory of Tarka, I am crowning Joe Cermelli the winner. <laughs> Joe, thank you for your tribute to two legendary size kings this week. This does not mean, however, I want Fish News to turn into an awards show in memoriam reel. People will expect us to get Celine Dion to sing hallelujah over some black and white photos of dead fish. And we do not have Celine Dion in the budget. Maybe Sarah McLaughlin, though. Anyway, all this death and sadness, yeah. I could use a stiff drink. Yeah. I don't know about you, but uh, instead of instead of hitting the uh, the local corner bar, which would be easy, let's uh, let's head to Australia for this week's "That's My Bar." Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine, or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. This week on That's My Bar, we're taking a really long imaginary flight to a place I'm not sure I'll ever uh, be able to actually afford to fish. This may be as close as I ever get, but I must say it's cool to have a bar nomination from freaking Victoria, Australia. Yeah. Right? We, yes. We said we wanted to hear about bars all around the world, and listener Josh Carpenter delivered with this gem. Okay, And Josh writes... When you talked about the best fishing bars in the world, I immediately thought of the Bem River Hotel in East Gippsland area of Australia. The entire township has a total of two stores, the Bem River Hotel and a tackle shop. Why do I not live there? Yeah. Um, it, he says, that's the kind of place it is. The Bem River Hotel comes with all the startup requisites for a fishing bar, 40-year-old carpet, Dusty skin mounts on every wall, a large stainless steel trough instead of urinals, a golden retriever 
that has worn a groove into the floor laying next to the door and monochrome photos of two men standing next to a hundred dead fish on the ground from the good old days. But if that's not enough, okay, there's, Josh goes wait, on. There's more? There is more. I'm, I'm already sold, man. You yeah, had me well, a golden retriever on the floor. <laughs> he says, what makes the place really special, though, is that whenever fishing tournaments come through town, they will extend trading hours and employ extra local people to accommodate the anglers. They will cook bacon and egg rolls and make coffee at 5 a.m. and then serve booze as late as the anglers will keep buying it. They also cook a mean feed of greasy chicken parmesans uh, on a mountain of fries to fuel anglers. All of this, even though they are the only place you could possibly go within 60 miles, and he says plenty of other bars on the tournament trail won't even keep the kitchen open 10 minutes longer than normal. That's how you nominate a place. No doubt. That, I mean, uh, uh, cue the applause. That's Not only does that sound like an amazing place, but that guy did a fantastic job of describing it so yes. kudos to him as well josh from australia we thank josh. you brother and I, I i love this and the most striking and educational thing for me is that i had no idea the aussies ate chicken parm oh yeah man everybody eats chicken parm come on now. see like who would have thunk like that's that's what i expect to hear from a nomination of a bar where like the party boats dock in brooklyn you know I mean? <laughs> yeah, they got the chicken palm, <laughs> they got the fresh peppers, little gabagool. Not Australia. That should have been like kangaroo kebabs and deep fried yabbies or something. Anyway. Hey, hey, don't do not talk smack on kangaroo meat. It is delicious. And okay. I'm not joking right now. I, I, okay. I think Josh will probably back me up on this. Josh, kangaroo is delicious. Don't let anybody tell you different. Josh, you can you can write back in and, and back Miles up on that. But I have a, a message for you, man. Um, I looked this place up. Super cool. Divey bar meets store, convenience store with a boat ramp. It's right on the bay. But, dude, I have some bad news. Per the BEM website, the joint's for sale, man. So, Josh, if you have the financial means, maybe this is a sign that you need to purchase this joint and keep Bems cranking so Miles and I can come visit you and drink there someday. Maybe we take up a collection. We turn it into Bents. It's, <laughs> it's, our, uh, it's our, our flagship headquarters outside of the U.S. Let's get the stickers and T-shirts going before we start buying, <laughs> buying water and holes. <laughs> anyway, we've been enjoying all your bar nominations, so please keep those coming. We appreciate your help so much. Keep firing them off to bent at com so we can keep this list growing and give your local hangs some love. Be honest with you, man. I just want to know more about Australian fishing tournaments. Right? You know, like we've covered the fact that neither one of us is big into tournament fishing, at least, you know, not the way it's done here in the States. But I got to imagine the Aussies do it up right down there. You know what I mean? I would think so. Like, I mean, they, they seem to have a lot of stuff dialed when it comes to fishing because they have, they have so much good fishing and so many cool fish in Australia. Yeah. But I have no idea, like, what's their tournament fish? What is it that they are... Tournamenting. I have no, I have no is idea. It, is it Barramundi? Is it Murray Cod? Is it Australian bass? I don't know. Josh, if you're still listening, fill us in. We are ignorant about your tournament targets down there, but uh, we like learning stuff. Also, Joe, we have a listener, at least one <laughs> listener in Australia. So that's that, pretty cool. That could equate to one couch we could sleep on <laughs> yeah. in Australia. If, if we needed to. But yeah, Josh, let us know because I, you know, the bar you mentioned is coastal. So if it's a saltwater tournament, it's even more interesting. Like what, yeah. what do you guys, what do you guys target? What do you, what do you have to? Um, 
you know, and they do have very cool fish there. So I've heard. I've never fished there myself because that's I have. expensive. Oh, it you is, have? It is. I have. Well, yeah. My uh, I should clarify that that my wife works for an Australian organization, so so she gets to go down or used to be able to go down there back when we could travel a lot. She's and, got, and she's I, got I, mad I Qantas go. miles, doesn't she? she? <laughs> she's she's all about those Qantas miles. She just rides in the pouch. Um, <laughs> I the the one time I did get to fish out there, I I think I caught the world's smallest Murray cod. But uh, uh, I, those are super cool fish, and if you don't know about them, we'll we'll cover them here at some point because I've I've written about them before, and I loved hanging out in Australia. Uh, and just a quick tip for other uh, Americans who may go there: I made some poor footwear choices, but you shouldn't bring snake boots. All the Aussies <laughs> wear snake boots, and running through the bush in shorts and flip flops in the middle of the night is a good way to die. So. Pro tip for you. I sense that there's a deeper backstory there that I'm, there I don't know. <laughs> there, there's a, it's a long story. We're going to have to tell that one another time. Short version is they have these things called brown snakes. They will kill people very quickly. Uh, I think I only avoided getting bitten through sheer luck and ignorance. Straight up. Well, like, hey, man, however, whatever it takes to stay safe. Sheer luck and ignorance, <laughs> that works sometimes. My anyway, <laughs> for all the fascinating and fun fish they have in Oz, and there are a lot of them, one fish that they don't have are gar. And if you're one of the outcasts like me in the pro-gar fishing camp, listen up, because this week's tackle hack comes from our good friend Alvin Dedeau in Texas, and he's going to pass along a sweet little nugget for how you can catch more of them gars. I'm getting hacked. Coming from inside the city. Like the planet! Today's tackle hack comes to us from renowned fishing guide from all over the West, Alvin Dedeau. Alvin, how are you, man? I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm also fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> and you, uh, I mean, dude, you, you got it all over the place. You've done fresh, you've done salt, you've done rivers, you've done lakes. Like you, you just, you do it all, right? That's right. All waters, man. So as someone who, who has guided and fished just about every kind of fishing there is, we brought you here to give us one of your favorite tips on fishing. Give us your tackle hack, man. What do you got? All right. I'm calling this one the gar attachment. So <laughs> <laughs> it is an attachment that you can put on your hook, whether it's a fly or spinner, a plug, whatever, that will allow you to catch some gar. Gar are um, known for having very bony mouths, and it's hard to get a hook in them. Small hooks, big hooks, doesn't really matter. But if you really want to get them, what you need is a gar attachment. And a gar attachment is a piece of nylon rope, maybe two inches long. You burn one end so it doesn't fray, and then you take the other end and fray it out. Now, the important part is that you make a, a pretty good-sized chunk of burned rope on one end, because what you're going to do is poke your hook through that burn section of the rope, and that'll keep it on there. So you don't have to tie it on. You don't have to make a fly. You don't have to make a lure with it on there. You just got a little piece of rope that's ready to stick on your hook when you want to get a gar. And the way it works is gar have uh, barbed teeth. So their teeth are designed to grab stuff and hold. They're not designed for cutting. So what happens when the gar grabs the yarn the barbs in their teeth get tangled up. And what you got to do is you got to let them take it for a little bit. So let them run with it for a little bit before you set the hook, even though you're not really setting the hook. You're just getting the line tight. The teeth are tangled up. And it works really well. Now, the thing about it is, uh, especially if you want to catch a gar to eat, it's a really good technique. But if you're trying to catch gar and release them, 
bring some gloves and some le- and some long nose pliers <laughs> because you're gonna have to you're gonna have to untangle the gar attachment from the gar's teeth if you want to return the gar to the water. If you want to keep the gar and eat it, you're all good. Whack them on the head and yank it out and throw them in the cooler. So always have a gar attachment with you so you can get you some gar. If this was an if this was an infomercial, I'd order twelve already right now. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah. Sunday, 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 Gar, Gar, Gar. Well, I just happen I just happen to be setting up a website that y'all can go to <laughs> www.gartachment.net. Because when you got the gar attachment, you don't need no net. I know that gar, that's kind of like a, a a niche fish. But that is a solid bit of wisdom right there if you're into those. It shouldn't be a niche fish. I'm, I'm just saying more and more uh, of agree. us should, should gar are so fun. And and that's a good tip, if particularly if you're, you're a little curious about the gars and want to figure it out. I'm telling you, that's a good tip. I've seen Alvin use that successfully. And and if anybody out there watched season one of Das Boat, you might recognize that little maneuver. Oh, that's right. After, after Jesse Griffith farmed like 10 gar on spinnerbaits and clousers because he just like the hook just wouldn't stick. Alvin rigged up that gar attachment and Jesse promptly got it done. It worked. It worked a charm, man. <laughs> it's a secret weapon. Secret <laughs> weapon of all good gar anglers. Cheap ass nylon rope. It is not just for tying off that minner bucket. No, no, no. It is uh, It is a tool <laughs> of, of many, many uses. We don't have time to list all the different things you should be doing with your ends of nylon rope because we are coming to the end. But before we go, Joe is going to tell you about a bait with possibly the coolest name of all time in this week's End of the Line. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. Nomad Design Tackle is an Australian-based company that specializes in creating lures that will fool and stand up to big, bad blue water brawlers like tuna and giant trevallis. Now, given that the Aussies have a testing ground with much cooler shit to test on, like those GTs and dogtooth tunas, it's no wonder that Nomad's wares have infiltrated the U.S. market, coveted. By those like me infatuated with casting, not trolling, for badass pelagic species. Nomad makes all kinds of cool stuff, but I'm going to go on record right now and say there is no offering finer than the popper they released in 2018 called the Chug Norris. Now here's the thing, right? I've never fished a Chug Norris. I don't even own a Chug Norris. I've held the Chug Norris in my hand several times at various tackle shops. I've debated the Chug Norris, and each time I've decided I couldn't bring myself to drop 35 smackers on a popper I don't really need. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying the Chug Norris isn't worth that kind of money. It's extremely well-made, tough as nails, and supposedly has design elements that allow it to throw a ton of water while being easier to work than other similar offshore poppers. But the thing is, as much as I love throwing poppers at tuna and dolphin, I I only get to do it a handful of times a season if I'm lucky. And it's been my experience that when you're dealing with a school of hungry, boiling tuna or a bull dolphin hovering under some flotsam, if they're fired up enough to eat a popper, it don't matter if it's a mad manis, thorn GT popper, pro popper, jet popper, bull pop, tuna rocket, or tuna hunter. And I have plenty of all of those. 
which essentially means I only want to buy a Chug Norris because it's called the Chug Norris, which brings us to why I've included this lure that I've never actually thrown in End of the Line. I distinctly recall walking up on the Nomad booth at ICAST, which is the big tackle industry trade show, back in 2018, seeing the sign reading Chug Norris and swooning. As I remember, I had to brace myself on the table of a man selling beer koozies that had LED lights in them and coolers that featured built-in deep fat fryers. It was, and still remains, the best goddamn lure name I've ever heard. It's worthy of owning and throwing just so you can include the words Chug Norris in your Instagram posts. Think of the witty pop culture possibilities. Chug Norris doesn't shower. He only takes blood baths. When Chug Norris does division, there are no remainders. There is no theory of evolution, just a list of creatures Chug Norris allows to live. And for those of you that travel to fish, keep Chug Norris once visited the Virgin Islands. They are now the islands in your back pocket. Don't worry, all you Middle America listeners that have no use for a 7-inch popper that can tackle a fish as big and heavy as your lawn tractor. Nomad also makes 3.75-inch Chug Norris models, which would probably catch some muskies or some some hog largemouths. And that said, though, you know, for a time, there was even an itty-bitty 2-inch freshwater Chug Norris that featured patterns like frog and crayfish, but it appears to be discontinued. Probably because y'all are doing just fine with your pop bars and hula poppers, but my pop bar came in contact with the coronavirus. Now the coronavirus is quarantining for two weeks, just doesn't have the same ring. Well, that's it for this week. Hopefully you now know how to tell when a Canadian is making fun of you, why you should never, ever Leave a newlywed couple in your boat alone for more than 10 minutes, no matter how old they are, and why Joe always carries a bag of nylon rope soaked in bacon grease in his front pocket. I do. And if you have crafted any of your own bacon grease tricks, please tell us about them. Email us at bent at themeateater.com. We always appreciate hearing from you guys, even if you're just writing in to tell us what we can do better. Absolutely. And if you are digging the show, please Let the world know. Give us some stars. Leave us a review. Or better yet, tell your friends. We won't ask you for money like those NPR chumps, but we will continue asking for your help getting the word out because that's what allows us to have jobs. Uh, Yeah. I mean, if you... (laughs) Assuming you can call this a job. It could be worse, dude. We could be restocking the air purifiers at the Sharper Image over there. They're selling like hotcakes, I hear. Anyway. The sharper Image still exists? Yeah, I think. At least, okay. I, maybe. Anyway. Until next time, make sure your coffee is Black Rifle, and make sure you check your hole for that drain plug. Hey, do you guys remember bonus tracks? Hidden secret tracks at the end of a CD? Sometimes they'd be like track 4000 or you had to listen for like five minutes after the last song. If you stuck around this long, you're about to get a bonus track because as it turns out, River Horse from our Sagely Wisdom with River Horse segment in the last episode had not actually listened to our podcast before recording that. No. And apparently now he has a much better sense of what we're doing. No, the whole thing, River Horse came on because I called him and said, hey man, 
we'd like to get you on our podcast. But apparently he never did his due diligence and didn't know what he was contributing to. So <laughs> after he actually listened to the show, he sent us this voice message that we are now going to play for you as a little bonus. Enjoy. Oh, yes, yes, and hell yes. What a fine, fine, super fine riff of a podcast, boys. An honor to be on there with you. Now I see what kind of party it is. I'm going to pull out all the stops on the next one. Get ready for a throwdown. A full-on fight on the playground, baby. But let's have a little chat, Joe and Miles. Inya, my lord. How come I can't be the Cherokee Viking love child of James Harold Jones and Fabio? Or perhaps the tree-hugger Texas fly-fishing hippie Morgan Freeman? Hmm, now that I think about it, the Inya reference makes me feel kind of prom night sexy. Ooh, thanks again for having me along for that ride. And I'm going to whisper sweet nothings in your ears. <laughs> You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 